Welcome to the Moot Podcast. This was recorded on the 2nd of May 2010, on the 5th Sunday of Easter, where Aaron Kennedy explores the importance of facing the ego through the use of virtues, spiritual practices and postures. In Moot, we're not very self-consciously emerging church. In fact, we're wary of branding ourselves as a new category of Christian. Let's face it, the church doesn't need any more subdivisions. But if there's one thing that I get about it, this idea of the emerging church, it's the desire to transcend the vast pendulum swings in religious affiliation over the last 500 years, and even in the last 50, with the emergence of fundamentalism and the vast numbers of people leaving the established traditions, many of whom become atheists. In this most natural, most human way of thinking, the world is divided into two types of people or rather, thousands of sets of two types of people. For example, those who like Marmite and those who find it repugnant. Those who eat their cream eggs by taking a lid off the top and then licking the insides out, and those who prefer just to put it down in two big bites. Other silly and potentially destructive dichotomies include the male-female one, the gay-straight one, the Protestant-Catholic one, and the black-white black, the black one. Deeply lodged in the DNA of Moot is a desire to find a resolution of opposites. And it's a good thing, because we're a mixed bunch. We are evangelical, but we're also Catholic. We're liberal, but we also have passion and fervor, at least a little bit. We don't see ourselves as distinct from culture, but neither do we accept it uncritically. We believe the Bible still has lots to say to the world today, but we're not convinced it's inerrant or even that easy to understand. We're aware that there's a non-material spiritual mower in this life, but we haven't given up on seeing God's will being done here on earth now. For all our feelings, the Moot community is a special, special thing because we seek to transcend dualistic thinking by holding together supposedly contradictory opposites. We're striving, I think, for a third position. A position, which isn't really a position at all, that will release us from the mindset that's given humankind such abominable gifts as genocide, war, racism, homophobia, ecocide, slavery, the Holocaust, and an often privatized, isolated, sanitized, consumptive existence that very often feels more like incarceration. But what is this third position? How can we find it? Did Jesus have anything to say about it? Well, our reading from John's Gospel tells us uh, part of the story of the Last Supper in the upper room. Jesus is once again talking about his impending suffering and Peter vows to lay down his life for him. Of course, Jesus isn't convinced and he predicts that Peter will deny him. Later on in chapter 18, when that moment comes, when the cock crows, when Peter refuses to acknowledge that Jesus is actually his friend and teacher, we have one of the most awkward, painfully sad moments in the Gospels. While it's all too easy to identify with Peter in that situation, I'm sure most of us feel a little bit ashamed of him. How could he, the rock, let Jesus down when he was at his most needy? after all those bold words of passionate love and devotion. It's disappointing for us, but of course he let him down. He was looking after his own skin, 
we would probably have done exactly the same thing. But, how did Jesus know with such certainty when they were gathered there in the upper room that Peter would betray him? Apart from the fact that he's God and pretty much knows everything. Well, perhaps there's a clue in Matthew chapter 16. Just after Peter scores massive brownie points by correctly confessing Jesus as, as the Christ, Son of the living God, Jesus tells the disciples that he must suffer, ultimately die, and then be raised to life again. Amazingly, perhaps exalting a little too much in his newfound confidence, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. As you probably remember, Jesus comes back with an even more gobsmacking left-field counter-rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. He qualifies his response with the following revealing line. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now perhaps this sheds some light on why Jesus didn't waste time predicting that, that Peter would betray him. He rightly guessed that Peter still didn't understand what he was really all about. That he, that he still above all wanted to see Jesus establish an earthly throne and an earthly kingdom of political power. That he didn't, he didn't really have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. As Jesus was handed over to the, other, to the authorities, alone, unarmed, in the middle of the night and pretty much in total secrecy, it was quite obvious to Peter that his chances of leading a coup that would overthrow the vast powers of Rome were pretty slim. I wager that Peter would have given his life for even the slimmest chance of a bit of peace and freedom for the people of Israel. But what would be the point in dying with Jesus now, at night, in defeat and ignominy? How would that achieve a change of politics? How would that bring liberation for Israel? Having in mind the things of men, Peter's response seems inevitable. Jesus was, as God, by definition, a contemplative. All you have to do is think of statements like this from John 17. Father, just as you were in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As a contemplative, he did not intend to be Israel's or Peter's political liberator. As a contemplative, he'd rejected this dualistic thinking and realized that earthly victories are often destructive and ultimately they miss the point. He wanted to transcend the mindset of both the oppressor and the oppressed. He wanted to reimagine the whole picture. So, instead of two warring factions, the Romans and the Israelites, the same old pattern repeated without fail throughout pretty much all of human history, Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom to which both sides could have access but which neither could possess a kingdom not of this world now that's not to say it was outside of this world just not particularly obvious with the eyes of this world it was to do with the things of God the virtues, practices and postures we're exploring in Moot at the minute were designed many many years ago to help us recognise and live in Jesus' kingdom the proposal before us, which we will explore and discuss over the months and probably years to come, is not some newfangled theoretical contraption Ian and I have invented. No, it's, in fact, it's just a re-articulation of ancient practices, 
arguably shared in various forms by all the world's major religions. And they help us confront the possessive entangling machinations of our egos head on. They enable us to journey on the contemplative path. If you remember one thing from my homily tonight, remember this. The ego is the single biggest obstacle to finding happiness. And happiness is found in recognizing and living in this kingdom. And what I mean by that is to begin to get beyond the ego, to get beyond the fascinations and infatuations of the thoughts and feelings that imprison us. It was his ego that prevented Peter from clearly seeing Jesus' message and mission. Despite having hung out with him for so long, Peter still wanted just to defeat the Romans. He still wanted victory for the nation of Israel. And maybe that wasn't an entirely bad thing, but he was still living in the ego's either-or schema of reality. As a contemplative, Jesus sought resolution between these supposed opposites. And he established a kingdom of the third way. The ego plays havoc in so many ways in our lives, preventing us from recognizing and living in the kingdom Jesus inaugurated. Often we're so locked into its false logic that we can't even imagine what inner freedom might look like. A quick personal example. I hate speaking in public. And I know I'm doing it right now. It doesn't change the fact I now know that this is because I fear the destruction of a false me, a me that needs to appear eloquent, spiritual, and knowledgeable. But I worked out a long time ago as a little boy that the best way to avoid any questions being raised about this was not to stick my head above the parapet, but just try to blend into the background. Don't open your mouth. Don't contribute. The result for me has been that over the years, I've been held captive by the fear of taking a blow to this ego. You may not have caught it, but I played a Panama Kings song called Young Blood just before the service started. There's a line in it that says, It's hard to commit when you're trying to quit. I heard it the other day, and I realized I've found it hard to commit to any of my own opinions, to my own sense of self sometimes, because I've had a habit I couldn't quit, a habit of protecting a fragile, false self. In other words... As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I'm a contradiction to myself. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. My ego holds me captive. Spiritual writer and speaker Richard Rohr says that the only two things strong enough to transform my ego are suffering and prayer. It's not a happy message, but it's worth considering. The prayer, he says, we can do for ourselves. The suffering, we have no choice about. It just happens. And so hence the proposal we've made on virtues, practices and postures. What we hope they will do for us is help us slow down enough so that God can catch up with us and do the work that needs to be done. So, when the pain comes, as it does, the pain that can't be helped, the pain that fragments us, the prayers and the disciplines, spiritual practices, They'll be there to hold us in this third place, in this kingdom. So that instead of hating, judging, fearing, resenting, we can gradually transcend our egos and, like Peter, begin to learn what Jesus was really all about. I believe we must realize now that God has given this 
emerging church of which Moot is a part. A growing awareness of this third place, the kingdom of God. As an emerging church, we've been called and have called ourselves dissatisfied, disillusioned, postmodern, post-evangelical, post-Protestant, post-liberal, post-church, you name it. All these negative statements are descriptions of what we are not. But this searching, questioning, agonizing drive within us, within the Moot community, I believe, is of God. And it's giving birth to a third way of being. A contemplative way of both and, not either or. It enables us to transcend opposites, to embody paradoxes, to not be captive to thinking, but to hold thinking in balance with being. We are, I believe, gradually awakening to the absolute, all-pervading presence of God, the ground of our being, the unbroken fabric of spirit that unites all things. We are being opened up to the things of God, to see the life and death, mission and message of Jesus in a new light. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this MOOC podcast. For more information on the MOOC community, its activities and resources, please see www.moot.uk.net.